Today's episode of Chunky Glasses, the podcast, is brought to you by the Indivisible Guide, a practical guide for resisting the Trump agenda. It's a team made up of former congressional staffers uh, revealing their best practices for making Congress listen. That sounds like something we're all interested in, right? Right. Uh, you can donate to this group on their page at www.indivisibleguide.com. You can follow them up on Twitter, which is at Indivisible Team. Uh, we follow them. So if you just look at our followers, you can get it like that. They have weekly calls. They have put out emails. They, they make uh, videos. They, they, they're keeping you informed so you can, uh, as the kids say, stay woke and, uh, we can maybe get some shit done. So that's Indivisible Guide. Uh, they are awesome. And now let's get on with the show. Here and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Nearly a two word review, just a shit sandwich. I will roll the record up for the next That right there is a Welcome back to the Basement Fellow Music Lovers. You are now tuned in to yet another exciting adventure with us here on Chunky Glasses, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin, as usual, and uh, this is one of our special podcasts, or uh, Discologists. This is where we take a classic album and we sort of sort of dig into it. Now, we do that a couple different ways. Sometimes we just give you a solid history of the album. Sometimes we give you all the behind-the-scenes dirt. Uh, those are fun, but, uh, but on this one, we're going to do sort of a larger discussion on what the album um, meant Back in 1987, when it came out, and uh, and how uh, it's sort of horrifying that that what it spoke to is still relevant now here in 2017, 30 years later. The album is, of course, "You Choose the Joshua Tree," a landmark when it was released. It, it would be a landmark in any year that it was released. Uh, it laid their claim to superstardom, made them the best band in the world, uh, according to at least themselves, uh, which we're also going to talk about, and uh, and really cemented their legacy. As one of the uh, one of the greatest rock and roll bands uh, in in history in our canon. Uh, so joining me down here today, we're going to have uh, Ian Taranji from Lucky So and So's. You've heard him on a lot of these. We're going to have uh, Sarah Godfrey. You know her, and uh, Michael Zwern, neighbor Zwern, uh, over here. He's he's been coming around a little bit more. So uh, we were all kids back then. Uh, we are we are so much older now, but. Uh, so, so that's all we're doing this week. So it's, uh, it's a good long podcast. I think it's about like an hour, hour and a half, hour 20. Uh, so if you were looking for some nostalgia, we're going to play some tracks. If you're looking maybe to be educated a little to what is this all about. Maybe you hate you too, but you're intrigued that we're talking about you too. Why would we, who have arguably good taste, be talking about this band you hate? Look, man, dig in. Just just relax, sit down, hang out with us down here, and uh, and see what you can get out of it. So if you guys are ready and uh, we uh, we are all set, mentally prepared, we have a nice cold beverage in your hands, let's head on down to the basement uh, where me and my friends are going to talk a little bit about U2's The Joshua Tree. This is uh, a... <laughs> 
awkward place to start. <laughs> but uh, you're right, Ian. We're talking about U2's Joshua Tree tonight. Uh, down here uh, with me are you heard Ian there? Who's I am Ian. on both? You know what? Ryan Adams banned me. Bono's gonna ban you. Mm. Wow, you're gonna get blocked mm. on Twitter, man. Uh, if I'm gonna get blocked by anybody, I'd rather it be Bono. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Godfrey, welcome hey, back. Hey. How you been? Good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Michael, hey, you surviving? I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is actually the podcast that nobody wanted to do except you guys. I don't know. Why. <laughs> so you're saying <laughs> after everyone else turned you down? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that, but uh, no. And the reason is because uh, in in 2017, the year of our Lord, uh, we know that YouTube doesn't have the most sterling reputation, not as beloved as as they once were. But 30 years ago, when the album we're going to be talking about, The Joshua Tree, came out, uh, they were, as as they would be quick to tell you from every chance to get the absolute biggest band in the world. Uh, this was Bono, The Edge, who uh, I think we were talking about this in single-handedly changed how we view effects-based guitar playing. Yep. We're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, Adam Clayton, who listened to him recently, one of the heaviest drummers, I think, in rock and roll history. The guy is a monster. And, um, I mean, sorry, Adam Clayton, the bass player. I was thinking Larry Mountain Jr. is the heaviest drummer. And Adam Clayton, though, he's, he just, uh, he smokes all the weed. That's all I know. <laughs> uh, no, that, that is one of the, that's one of the most deadly rhythm sections, like, in rock and roll. They get, I mean, they're going to be on the new Kendrick album. They're sneaky good. Crazy. Come on, yeah, that is crazy, yeah. you know. But uh, Kendrick likes good musicians. Started There's... off in 1976 as a punk band. Uh, they were fans of Sex Pistols, bands like that. Uh, even back then, uh, yeah, albums like War, October Boy, uh, they were a little raw around the edges. These were these anthemic songs. Uh, you, you you heard it in them, right? And, uh, sure. and then you got to like Sunday Bloody yeah. Sunday, mm-hmm. which was uh, you know at that time. Uh, it was a it was a response to a terrorist event in in Ireland, and uh, you know, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know why that played in the United States, but for whatever reason, like by talking about these very like local politics, mm-hmm. uh, they got a huge audience, at least in the underground when there was no underground. Then that's the other thing we have to remember. Uh, then in I believe it was. When did that album come out? I had it here. Was it 84? No. 82. Um, 84, I think, was Unforgettable War? Fire. War no, was 83. No, Unforgettable Fire. Unforgettable Fire would have been 85. Fire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Unforgettable Fire comes out. Brian Eno, Daniel Lynn Waller on board. Mm-hmm. Pride in the Name of Love mm-hmm. uh, is a mega hit. And all of a sudden, this band that was scrappy, I mean, they used to play a place called The Bayou here in D.C., mm-hmm. that was a punk band, went from that to being like, maybe we're going to be uh, a really big band. And the question was then, what are we going to do next? On that tour, they traveled around America. Mm-hmm. They hung out with people like Keith Richards, <laughs> Mick Jagger. Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, and all these people, and sort of talk to I them. Guess if you're into those people, yeah, yeah. If you're <laughs> into those people, sort of talk to them um, about uh, Irish folk music and roots music in America. And <clears throat> Bono, at least, uh, definitely took that to heart. And uh, what resulted was uh, a track we're going to play right now, 
uh, that kicked off the album, which uh, is really sneaky, actually. Picks up right from where MLK dropped off. Mm-hmm. If you listen yep. to uh, Off a Wheel of Fire. But the name of the song is Where the Streets Have No Name. Is still, uh, see if you want to punch through a wall after listening to this, kids. <laughs> Uh, in 1987, uh, that actually wasn't the first single, and uh, we're going to talk about that because that that song is still uh, there's nothing like it. But th- where the streets have no name, if you 30 years after the fact, if you need a uh, end of a rom com, you're running to like meet each other. Like perfect. It is. Uh, <laughs> you know, I want to run. I want to hide. I want to break down uh, the walls inside. Like that is uh, distilled. I was reading something today where Bono was saying that. He looked back, and these were sort of hokey lyrics, mm-hmm. but they're so like true, especially right. at the age we were like we were like fifteen yeah. mm-hmm. around then uh, when this came out. I to this particular song just this weekend in prepping for this, I was out mowing the lawn, and my Walkman consisted of uh, Big Generator by Yes, uh, Crowded House, and this <laughs> in, in wow. nineteen eighty seven, and I haven't done that since then and i literally had to stop and come inside because i got emotional 
Because not only <laughs> is that song, if you've never heard it, you have the edges like syncopated guitar, which nobody did. Mm-hmm. And nobody was doing then. Yep. You have this like like tribal drum beat, Larry Mullen, like all these like weird components to it that comes out in like just the biggest song of all time mm-hmm. or one of them. Uh, and to give you an idea of what, and then I want you guys to talk a little because I can just run in my mouth. Give you an idea of what though was out around that time. In 1987, the number one song was "Walk Like an Egyptian." Whitney Houston was at her peak with "I Want to Dance with Somebody." Excellent. Nothing's going to stop us now by crack. Starship. Not excellent. Uh, Not excellent. <laughs> living on a prayer. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> living on a prayer. La yes, Bamba. Uh, yes, don't dream it's over. Right house, which we're going to yes, do one for this. Yes, absolutely. So that, yes, uh, I think we're alone now with Tiffany, although I thought that was earlier. But uh, I'll take it. Latter Day Duran Duran. I'm going to skip that one. A band which they influenced each other. Sure. Are, we yes. talking, are we talking post reflex? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. no, we're, talking, we're talking Notorious. <laughs> yeah. All right. Notorious, which is hard so, to believe. So, so garbage. Uh, garbage. My personal Duran favorite, Duran. Heart and Soul by Tapau, was oh. going on there. <laughs> Cutting through. Uh, Prince, Sign of the Times. I just died in your arms tonight. Was Was that Cutting Crew? Huh? Yeah, I just died in your arms. Is that Cutting Crew? Yeah, it's Cutting Crew. Yes. Uh, And then Glass Tiger was in there somewhere. Genesis, In Too Deep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter Gabriel was just coming around, but people didn't know. He had the Sledgehammer video, but people really didn't. He he was just a weird dude. Yeah, he's still an art then, and then he emerges pop right then. And Respect Yourself by Bruce Willis. Mm. And and the return of Cool in the Gang with Victory. Ah. This was this was a. <laughs> is this Cool in the Gang post post funk jazz? Yeah, way past <laughs> <the> post funk <laughs> jazz. You know, right. so you had all these disparate sounds going on, which is honestly a hallmark of the '80s. And then this drops in, and if I remember correctly, I think it leveled like the the entire field. It was like yeah. for sure. months after this drop, you mm-hmm. had to pay attention to nothing. But the Joshua Tree. Mm-hmm. This so, was one of those great '80s albums that that not only was 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 great, but had it seemed like there was just a single pumped out like on a calendar every three or uh-huh. four months. There was mm-hmm. a, a new number one single mm-hmm. off this album, so it just was uh, like a central part of the zeitgeist for like two years. Yeah, and then they well, went on this massive tour. It was a point where a rock band could be at the central point of popular culture, which doesn't exist anymore. True, but exactly. But you two sort of at that peak, they were at the peak that rock bands could be in global yeah, popular stadiums. culture. Playing Sta- well, stadiums. Playing stadiums. stadiums. They were playing stadiums. stadiums they, they had, you had uh, Steve Van Zandt, you had like Live Aid had just mm-hmm. happened. Right. Uh, you had, so they were doing like these big benefit concerts, which were and that informs a lot of the songs on this, which and we'll Bob get to. Bob Geldof, Boomtown Rats, one of their influences, yeah. had sort of set that all off, you know, coming out of mm-hmm. Ireland and out of the sort of the yeah, humanitarian yeah. rock music scene, you know, and they were influenced by that idea that rock music isn't just music that you play to a large crowd. You use it to shape opinions of popular issues, of political issues. So you two were kind of influenced by the perception that rock is more than just music that you play. It's also about your values and how you live mm-hmm. them. Yeah, and and it was, they've been always doing stuff about their values, mm-hmm. but this weirdly, there's also a really weird fact about this song, that uh, it is a mathematic representation of the perfect algorithm. 
the E number, which well, I'll put in the show notes. It's really hard to understand. Th- three but, of us are looking at you like, yeah, 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 what? what's going on? So, so basically what this is, is this is, this is an algorithm. It, it is often presented as a curve in nature, and it, it occurs in everything. It is a part of everything. It's, it's like how certain numbers are just like, why did we find that? Like the, the Fibonacci sequence is one of them. Mm-hmm. Is this like the as movie we, 23? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As these notes fall together, uh, they uh, eventually form this this thing, and it, and it persists like throughout the entire this song. Or? Yeah, well, oh. it persists throughout the whole album. Wow. Like the way the Edge was using the delay in this, which was revolutionary. Yeah, well, I mean, you had uh, he uh, on the one of the biggest hits from this, "With or Without You." Mm-hmm. He was using a guitar called the Infinite Guitar that did not exist. That almost blew them up. You know. And you didn't have an Ebo. No. Like, which an Ebo, which, uh, explain what an Ebo is. So an Ebo, as far as I know, it, because I don't actually use one, but I, I have played with one before. Um, my understanding is it's just kind of like a big magnet that goes over the guitar strings mm-hmm. and creates a, a magnetic field yeah. that mm-hmm. then gets the, 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 the strings buzzing and vibrating. And I mean, anybody who understands sort of like the, the, the string instrument. Yeah, when you, sound, when you I mean, hear, it's, it's the vibration of the string. It, yeah, it is, it is literally an electronic bow, like yeah. a bow instrument. You have to like draw a bow across it, and then. Well, you uh, don't draw across though. You go up. You go up yeah. the string. Yeah, the, you, up sit the it, string. you sit it on the string, and that way you can move your hand <laughs> yeah. up and down the neck right. of whatever instrument you're doing, and it keeps that beautiful like sustained right. sound that's it in that song. Very, it sustains. It and sustained basically. <laughs> Sarah's looking at us like we just dropped some knowledge. I on her. love this guitar nerdness. Um, REM, uh, late REM, Ebo, yeah, Ebo, the letter, yeah. Which is funny, funny you mentioned them because they their album Document was out at this yep. time, which is very uh, similar in ambition, but they still were because there was a time that they these two bands were the biggest bands in the world. Yeah, sure. but REM was always commercially a number of years behind U two in terms yeah. of commercial viability. I look at at a Document as equivalent to U 2s War. Both thematically and kind mm-hmm. of in terms of like the first big break into mainstream right, right. visibility, and like out of time would be their uh, Joshua Tree. Yeah, in terms of yeah. you know world visibility, number right. one record kind right, of right, stuff. Right. Yeah, and you know I'm a more of an REM fan than I'm a U2 fan, but U2 had the universality, and you hear the first three singles of Joshua Tree. There's this universal sentiments. They're not mm-hmm. having the specificity that they did in the records on. Um, Unforgettable Fire or War, where there are very specific right. themes, historical events, personages. In Joshua Tree, it's these universal sentiments of longing, uh, religious sentiment, the idea that, um, you know, connection, whether it's with another person or with God, is something that people are still yearning for. And these universal sentiments are kind of what makes Joshua Tree such a anthemic, but not very specific kind of statement. I mean, everyone can empathize with it because it doesn't have that you know, specificness of, you know, this is a, a place in a time in a, a country when I'm going to tell you about it, which is a lot of the other U2 records up yeah, to that point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were, they were talking about their specific experience mm-hmm. in Ireland and, and, and those conflicts. Chile, and then they got Chile, Universalist yeah, yeah. and Burma well, and, and God knows what. But yeah. You know, and this was, uh, there's songs of this are inspired by uh, San Salvador, mm-hmm. which we are definitely going to talk about that. Uh, uh, there are songs, I mean, all these experiences that they had, like built into it, but instead of talking about it, like you said, in in these specific terms, they made it. Um, it didn't soften it. Like that. That's the weird thing. It it's a weird, non-specific. Just like you get it, and and you understand what you have to know what's going on in the world. 
Like I've talked to people about this who were not born when this album came out, mm-hmm. and there's songs on it that they, that don't make sense to them. They're just like mm-hmm. because what what U two does now is these broad generalities. You know, Vertigo is like what the, fuck, what the yeah. hell is that song about? You know, it's just a good like rock song, but it, what, it, it's an iPod video. It's an iPod video. Song I want to play next, though. I think uh, again, this is non-specific, even though it would come out later. This is about his wife because mm-hmm. uh, this is a very challenging time uh, in all their lives, and it's also about God. Mm-hmm. It's also about because you got to remember, this is like no joke, a Christian band. Absolutely, yeah. this is Christian rock, not. Not the South Park mocking Christian rock. This is, uh, and you know they str- They almost quit. They almost weren't a band because of it. But they stayed together, and out of it, you get uh, the song "With or Without You." That 
guitar refrain is etched in rock and roll history is one of the greatest builds up to anything. Sarah, how does that make you feel? Amazing. You've been Young, yeah, alive. Yeah? <laughs> when, 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 this, when this album came out, like, what were you doing musically? I was probably... See, I come to this sort of from a different place. I think I was the Whitney Houston and the Tiffany mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I think it was 12 when this came out. So it was all pop, 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 and then Joshua Tree, and then all rap, rap, rap. So I'm not a U2 expert or right. even fan by any stretch. I'm just a fan of this just album. Just a fan of this it album. It ruled <laughs> my world. It did. The sixth grade, I guess. <laughs> oh. Wow. And all of the cool older kids were listening to I it. I am old. Dang. <laughs> 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 okay. It just seems, you I know. Mean, if you, uh, you can't watch the video on a podcast, but uh, <laughs> they create this mood and... Uh, it was, it, I mean, it was the number one video forever on MTV. Mm-hmm. It was unlike anything. This was the first single from the album. So think about going from In the Name of Love, like Pride in the Name of Love, to this. It's like, what? It's a slow build. It has a weird instrument that nobody's ever heard before. Like, what's what's going on here? Yeah. And it was like one of their biggest hits of all time. It was like, I, I can't even understand a world where this song doesn't exist mm-hmm. you know because it is just uh especially you see it live there's like mm-hmm. four other like stanzas to this whole th- it's it's just this immense like outpouring of almost like everything bono believes in like but like i'm saying his faith his relationships mm-hmm. his like everything and it's one thing perfectly batched by this band that had besides the edges innovation you had uh a drum sound that I don't think we get anymore these days. Him, Larry Mullen Jr., and Bill Berry. <laughs> uh, not on Document, on Life's Rich Pageant. Hmm. Are the only people who really can get that that true big drum sound. It mm-hmm. sounds like, you know, and for like Bill Berry, you know, this was recorded in a castle. So, I mean, this is, this sounds like it was recorded yes, in a castle. But like for Bill Berry, they were doing things like putting half his kit in an elevator shaft. And like an abandoned warehouse in, in, in Athens, Georgia, to get these solid, uh, just massive hits that you feel that's not dependent, like if you go to something like hip hop nowadays, not dependent on like the bass blowing it out, not dependent on like just shaking it. You feel the acousticness mm-hmm. of that instrument and it adds to the humanity of all like this music. And, uh, I don't know even that uh, you too did that ever again. I mean, you follow this up with uh, Octoon Baby, well, mm-hmm. Rattle and Hum, mm-hmm. which is great, but follow this up with uh, Rattle and Hum, Octoon Baby, and, uh, and Zeropa, and he, by then, they were already, like, fucking with the formula. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. because the, the, the persona that Bono had a, accumulated around himself by that point was just, you know, so overripe, I think, that he decided to burst his own kind of ego with the, the McFisto kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, performances and the sort of, like, self-mocking kind of displays of consumerism and whatnot later in the U2 kind of era. But they went back to that a number of years later with all that you can't live behind. And, and I think they did it well, effect, you know, effectively from the songwriting perspective, but it didn't have the same degree of centrality to popular culture at that point. Then it was a popular record. It was a very good record, mm-hmm. but it wasn't at the sort of at the center of right. global popular culture at that point. Well, and I mean, but at that point that was first record in 10 years. It was it was a long time that they'd put out a proper studio. When, actually, when record. did that album come out? Two thousand uh, was I believe that all that you can't leave behind was two. I think it was two thousand. 
2000. It was, it was before 9-11. It was. It was, because it was, yeah. they played walk-on. It was absolutely before 9-11, and, because I got uh, into graduate school, and I yeah. didn't graduate before 9-11. Again, dating myself. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. It, 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 they had, by that point, spawned so many, like, U2 clones. Mm-hmm. People who love you. The, the influence of the edge on modern guitar playing is like, cannot be stated enough. Right. This is, <clears throat> I think as far as effects based people go, you have him, you have David Gilmore. Mm-hmm. And then people I mean, who are I, like, well known. I mean, the list is short. Sound, the list is short. Van Halen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With the phase. Yeah. yeah. And, and the list is real short. And then everybody like wants to be them. Yeah. As soon as this delay came in, everybody was like, fuck, I'm going to use delay. I'm going to yeah. use it on everything. I know. And everyone thinks, yeah. And everyone thinks that it's so, it's so easy. You just step on the delay and you sound like the edge. Delay is <laughs> actually a very difficult pedal to control mm-hmm. and it can be, it can work great at one tempo and then you play a different song at a different tempo and it's, just mm-hmm. fucking everything up. So, so, so that song um, was dealing with uh, Bono's uh, personal self, and uh, there's a lot on here. You know, if you get to One Tree Hill, I don't know if we're going to play that, but it, it's a uh, it's an ode to his personal assistant and driving a motorcycle. It's a it's a gorgeous oh, song. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a gorgeous song. Uh, but they also uh, did go explicitly political in this mm-hmm. album with the song we're going to play next. Yep. Uh, Bullet the Blue Sky, still, I listened to it today. There's nothing else I've ever heard like it, which is, I mean, it's like a lot of songs on this album. Uh, nothing at the time, nothing since. It is, and maybe you can join me in this, Ian, like that first guitar hit, that slide, that's the sound you want. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it actually kind of follows the U2 formula because you've got the big drums, mm-hmm. you've got the bass holding it down, you've got the edge doing just crazy shit over top of a really solid, just driving rhythm, and just and, and, and brilliant vocals. So everything's layered on top of each other really well. It start, I mean, it's, a, it's the classic, you start with the drums, then the bass comes in, mm-hmm. then one guitar, then another, then the vocals. I mean, it's like everything yeah. builds on top of itself, and it builds to a really beautiful crescendo. But Bono's instruction to the edge when he was making the song, they couldn't figure out. This is a story with a lot of songs on this album. They couldn't figure out quite what to do because they didn't want to remake Unforgettable Fire, but they <laughs> wanted to do something. He said, uh, "Put San Salvador through an amp." They had just <laughs> gone down there, and uh, that's what he did. So, uh, both the blue sky.
It's masterful. It's horrifying. It is. It sounds like the gates of hell open. It's. It's. It sounds like Ward. He Bono got what he wanted from the Edge. That is. That's a guitar tone and a and a and a, a way of playing I have chased for thirty damn years now. Like that is to get that. <laughs> you and me both. You and me to both. To get that level of just across the board emotion. That he does it with so little, so little too. There's there's. Uh, it's it's like ringing notes here and there, yep. droning. Um, I mean, when he busts, even when he busts out the slide, it's no more than three or four notes no, that he's no. playing. No, no, the solo is but like it's three the tone, notes. It's, it's the, the tone. tone, it's the sound, the way it lays over and, just that and driving again, rhythm. Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. sound like they're going to driving, kill you. Driving like rhythm. That's, like, especially Clayton's bass line in that. It is just, yeah. it's brutal and it's vicious and it sounds... Again, like nothing else that was out at that time. Yep. Uh, there's another song on this album we're not going to play, but Exit, which has a similar vibe mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. Uh, Great song. That uh, originally they said that was going to be about a serial killer, but turned into sort of talking about our our response, the American response in the wartime. That song started out. Both Blue Sky started out uh, when he's talking about uh, the Red Face Man and all this stuff. That's supposed to be Ronald Reagan. Uh, later on in on. On tour, and and it just morphed into things like Jerry Falwell. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a popular thing in my hometown, per se. Uh, you know, and uh, they could make it really about uh, anything because what it, ex- it expressed was the rage uh, of peaceful people against war, which is something like now, and it's weird. So we just detect Syria, Ooh. right? Yeah. And this is, we're, we're not living in, in a, in a, in a bubbly space time right now, sure. and I was you, about to say, remember, remember how, remember how novel it was back when the bad guys were Ronald Reagan and Jerry Falwell. Well, it's not even mm. that. You, <laughs> even back, it, you know, listening. I to long this, for those days. Think about this. Listening to this thirty years later. Back then, uh, Sting's album was right before this. It had a song called Russians. Yeah. Yes, and mm-hmm. and you know, inspired by Prokofiev. Mind yeah, you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so the big bad. We were in the Cold War. And now, thirty years later, we find ourselves in that. So when I'm like listening to that song today, or like prepping for this, like that sounds unfortunately right. as relevant. It absolutely does. Like if somebody came out now and and just like let's do this, like this would be it would work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does. Yeah. Like I don't know how many people are going to go back to this. I know when they go out on tour. I mean, they're touring this album, but this is going to be fucking brutal. Uh, because everything that they were upset about, this is the one song I think that uh, captured their sort of local politics, like mm-hmm. the outrage, the very specific mm-hmm. outrage that they had on all the albums leading up to it, and just applied it to us. 
like Americans. Mm-hmm. This was the American Sunday Bloody Sunday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting yeah. observation because it had come after Unforgettable Fire, which was all about American history and about mm-hmm. American values, MLK, Elvis Presley in America. Mm-hmm. And then this is, you know, really about, you know, war, profiteering, and capitalism. You know, I can see those yeah. fighter planes. I can see those fighter planes. And then also, slapping down those hundred dollar bills in the in the idiom of like American classic rock, it also works in like the doors. It works in the end, sure. like and sure. that, that calls to mind like Vietnam. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's you were saying you like that spoken wordy, and that's that's a straight lift from mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. Walk on down the hall, <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, live he he quoted that. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's that's his is definitely one of his influence. Like, I'd like to get around to doing a Doors podcast. I don't I don't know uh, that I'm out. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you in too high school, sure, Doors. In, in, in high school, in high school, I had one of my to this day one of my very very close friends, and he was a Doors fanatic, fanatic, fanatic. That's all we listened to because he was the only one of my buddies who had a car because his dad owned a car dealership. Yeah, so like he was the guy who always drove us around on Friday, Saturday night. So it was like all Doors all the time. Like, hey man, can we throw Guns and Roses or something? It's like, nope. The well, soft parade. It, it was <laughs> it was a critical part of growing up, if, especially in the South. I mean, you know, you listen to classic rock. This is now classic yeah, rock. This is I mean, now classic rock. By the time I graduated from college and uh, moved back to uh, Roanoke, this was playing on the classic rock station. Yep. Yeah. And that was just like eight years. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And all of a sudden, with or without you, was every Friday night. Sometimes you got some sweet dedications. That was nice. It's old school. It's just like, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, do people know who those what those are? I think so. God, if you tell me that they don't, they I'm really done for. I'm sure, <laughs> sure they don't. I'm pretty sure they don't. No? <sighs> so back back in the day, kids, what you could do <laughs> is if you if you had somebody that you fancied and you knew that you might both be listening to the radio. This wouldn't work anymore because iPhones. No one listening. Yeah, exactly. But you knew on a Friday night. And you listen to radio, you can call up and you can make that dedication. That song could be something special, <laughs> or that song <laughs> could just be like you being a creep. <laughs> like, That's a creeping. You're, you're, uh-huh. <laughs> the, the object of your affection might hear it and might not reciprocate. <laughs> well, you mentioned with or without you. You know, there was a whole suite of creepy, sort of obsessive love songs. The One mm-hmm. I Love by R.E.M. Um, the police, every oh, breath you take, it predated it. Yeah, yeah. But then the one I love was, was simultaneous right. yeah. pretty much. And it's like, wait, do you really like this person? Are you just obsessed in an unhealthy kind of way with this person? Yeah. Cause it's kind of hard to Lather. tell. The latter, you said. Can I take a uh, second to talk about, uh, sequencing? So I listened yes. to every U2 record today from war through Zeropa. And one of the things that struck me was for the long span of time, U2 would put its massive hit song at the very forefront of every record. Boy, I Will Follow, Mm -hmm. Gloria, um, uh, on October. And then they put three massive hit songs on the front of Joshua Tree. Mm -hmm. Then at Achtung Baby, they they just stopped doing that. They would put weird stuff at the front of their records. They, they, I, I they would maybe also had the fly. So, yeah, but that wasn't the first song in the record, and it was the first single though. It was the first single, yes, but it wasn't the first song in the record. And I think they may have realized that they didn't have to be quite as obvious as they once were. They were the world leading mm-hmm. rock band. Yeah. They could bury some massive songs, you know, on track six out of thirteen mm-hmm. or whatever. And mm-hmm. they were at a stage in their careers where they could 
they could make their fans listen to weirder stuff up front, you know, Zoo Station. Yeah. Um, and, you know, get them through some interesting stuff, some of their experiments, before they got to classic sort of sounding U2. And on Joshua Tree, the weirder stuff is, you know, track four, Bolt the Blue Sky. Mm-hmm. And then later in the second half of the record, there's some very different songs. One Tree Hill, um, yeah. Trip Through Your Wires, those are some of my favorite songs in this record. They're not the singles, In God's Country, that span of records, that three running, songs. Running to Stand mm-hmm. Still, maybe, my, just, maybe actually my favorite song And Red Hill record. Mining Town. Yeah. It's like, yeah. these are songs that would be among any other band's, you know, top echelon right. songwriting. They put them at the end, and yeah. I think in later period, U2, they would put stuff like that, that maybe wasn't the hit single, but really interesting songs, they would put them at the front of the record. And I was thinking about the sequencing, because I was listening to all these records in, in sequence, yeah. chronologically, and you really got the sense that they would put their well, big, obvious song at the front and get everyone hooked on that. It's, it's weird, too. Do if anymore. you look at the sequencing of this album, it is a lot of, you know, we, we've talked about the... Uh, the doing the American songwriting, the topic changing and everything, mm-hmm. but also looking at roots music and stuff that that moved more towards the back of the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Definitely uh, utilizes gospel, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. where the streets have no name is has nothing to do with roots. And then there's with or without you build the blue sky. And then you get, like you said, running to a standstill, Red, Red Hill Mining Town, In God's Country, Trip Through Your Wires, mm-hmm. One Tree Hill. What, uh, which other do you think uh, we should play here? You were, uh, you were going to vote for some. You think? Running to stand still. Running to a standstill? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I had the live version of this, but this will do. <laughs> so she woke up, woke up from where she was, lying still, said, I gotta do something about where we
come in with the uh, acoustic, the dobro, uh, in yeah. on harmonicas. I mean, that's that, that, that's, that's America, son. That's America, and that that is uh, a sharp contrast from Bullet the Blue Sky. Yeah, yeah for it sure, is. it is. Was I, I forget on the tape? Was Bullet the Blue Sky the end of side A? Does anybody know? I don't, I don't was the think top so. Of I think there were five. Six, See, we get like that. one, two, three, four. I think that you're telling us that we all owned this on cassette when we <laughs> yeah, owned yeah, it originally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, you know what? I think running, running to a standstill might have been. Mm-hmm. I'll have to see. I think I have it somewhere. <laughs> Anyways, neither neither here nor there. I mean, but so th- so this is this is going from uh, like you were saying the weird shit to their take on Americana that that is infusing the rest of the album to my mind. Trip through your wires in God's country is just straight rock and it doesn't mm-hmm. sound like you know even the lyrical content might be uh deeper on the surface it is just like hey i'm at a rock show <laughs> like whatever and then the edge the delay goes away delay it's in there like a little bit like yeah. in uh in god's country there's a little bit of the harmonic like delay at the beginning to set it up so but it, it, it goes away throughout the whole thing uh one tree hill is like a bass driven song it's great and then it gets back to, I think, the weird stuff of Mothers of Disappeared, mm-hmm. which is back to the San Salvador thing, which is something that Sting wrote about uh, also I at that think time. It's actually, I think it's actually Argentina and Chile. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Not Salvador. But so earlier they sing Jara sang his song A Weapon. Jara is the Chilean uh, protest songwriter who was killed under uh, right. in the uh, Allende Revolution. Um mm-hmm. And so, do, did I know this in 1987? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, no, I did not know this. Uh, this is, you know, Bono being sort of a humanitarian educator to the world. Let me tell you about these human rights issues you should mm-hmm. know about. But, you know, putting that in the context of a not, you know, not a very specific lyric, but a reference that if people are attuned to it and look it up, it'll teach them a story that they probably haven't been taught in America or in Ireland or in England mm-hmm. at that point, because it was sort of on the wrong side of that Cold War you were talking about. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the victims of that were were the socialists. Yeah. And uh, Jara was uh, was a socialist. And, and so he, they were singing in sympathy of the people who were taken over. Uh, by a right-wing pro-American government, <laughs> getting back to the I can hey! see the getting back to the I can see those fighter planes kind of lyrics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know who was doing this then. I don't know who's doing anything like this now. I think Peter Gabriel deserves some degree of he, yeah. credit and recognition at that point. Like he was trying to go from being an art music sort of person from out of Genesis and his first record to becoming a popular musician, but he was always influenced by and integrating kind of humanitarian concerns from Biko to a lot of other stuff and making that pop music. And I think he deserves some credit. Bob Gilbert. I I mean, everything was largely focused on like South Africa and, and the South America. Mm -hmm. So Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopia as well. And, and like all these bands put out these albums but then since then, like who if if who's political now that can match up to this, that can actually make a political album that isn't uh that doesn't just beat you over the head with the politics, that mm-hmm. actually says, Hey, we're gonna we're gonna have you you're sort of gonna enjoy yourself, but like you said, you you're gonna learn something if you wanna pay attention to it. Kendrick wow. Lamar. Huh. Thank Kendrick. Okay. So I feel like yeah. people think he beats them over the head. Uh, I mean I, I yeah. think if you want I mean like yeah, so the video, the imagery of stuff from a Kendrick record can be very 
shall we say, a little dogmatic, a little, mm-hmm. uh, a little forceful. But on the other hand, you know, King Kunta and whatnot, you know, like, you know, the songs have a lot of popular appeal. Mm-hmm, and it's like, oh, what's sure. this actually about? You know, <laughs> it's actually telling a really interesting story. And what you, what you two did really well was they would tell a really interesting story in some of their lyrics that would only be elusive. They wouldn't be like, I'm going to explain to you in, in 15 stanzas the history of American intervention in South right, America. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, by throwing in a few references, they make it clear what their sympathies are. And what I noted, and, and I, we talked about this earlier, is if you listen to War and Unforgettable Fire, it's the specificity can be a little overbearing because sometimes they're literally talking about like on this date and this time and this city this thing on happened the street right. on this on this particular street let <laughs> right. me name it uh early so, morning april 4 early yeah. morning april 4th and, and technically speaking there's a lot of discrepancies about what what time of the day really was it um but you know on joshua tree there's a lot of allusions to to the kind of social, humanitarian, political issues that they were really concerned about. But they made it a universal statement. And, you know, there's there's all this stuff that you can empathize with without knowing the specificity of the references. But then if you delve into the specificity of the references, you understand that there's multiple layers of meaning that they're getting out there, too. Well, we uh, do something, and by we, I mean all of us, like, just people now uh th- that uh i've talked with a few people about it down here actually but when especially again now mm-hmm. um because i think this type of stuff you know there's the argument about will art be better in the age of trump and that that's a, that's a dumb fucking We're question all shaking our heads yeah, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> but but i think what we what we do have people are more inclined to maybe say something mm-hmm. and uh, so I think we are going to see a rise of this, but we often complain when an artist goes political. Mm-hmm. I do not, by the way. But. I, I I don't either. Like personally, I, so I mean the greater we. Yeah. And and I and I've talked with people about it, and I've asked them specifically, like, why wouldn't you do this? You have the mm-hmm. platform, and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know. You know, it's entertainment. And well, it's this the is Michael not- Jordan. It's the Michael Jordan principle. That's Michael exactly Jordan was. So the Michael Jordan principle was, you know, I mean, back in the eighties and nineties when he mm-hmm. was the, you know, basically like one of the biggest, not just sports stars, but one of mm-hmm. the biggest superstars in the world, most recognizable, and he always caught flack from. Uh, uh, from African American groups for not speaking out on injustices and institutional racism and all that stuff, and his response was always, "Hey, Republicans buy shoes too." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's two. There's so two. Very... I think there's a lot of that that goes on when people yeah. don't, when artists don't want to engage. I think there's some of that sort of calculation. Mm-hmm. Going on. We're yeah. cynical too, though. I think well, someone re- could come out with an album like this that's very subtle and doesn't beat you over the head with these references and we would still hate I it. I prefer well, the subtle. And, that, that, <laughs> and, and that's actually what, I, what I've been trying to figure out is that you can do something like uh, like Father John Misty's album, right. which <laughs> is not necessarily speaking to the political. It is mm-hmm. just speaking to the state of humanity. I love it. Michael does not love it as much. <laughs> but let's 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 leave it at Father John Misty is he's a he's kind of a downer on the state of humanity as it yeah, is today. Yeah, yeah, He's a little negative. It's hard not to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I struggle every day. I struggle every day, but, but every day not falling into but, that. But believe that's, me. But that's always been art. That has always been like you can mm-hmm. comment on this state of humanity, not commenting on necessarily specific events or like policy mm-hmm. uh which is what like a song like bullet the blue sky is doing what a song like mothers that disappeared is doing mm-hmm. like raise awareness for this specific governmental policy right. that is like harming people right. uh that comes from their faith you know 
That, Absolutely. That, uh, you know, uh, yes. which I know a lot of bands recently have uh, come out as like they struggle with that and they don't write as good songs. I mean, I don't know what this, <laughs> yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is like, what was the secret sauce that they had uh, here mm-hmm. on this album and leading up to this album that is missing today? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's not just talent. It's not just like no. this combination I mean, of four people. It's not because theoretically we should be able to get this every time there's a political crisis. It's a, it's a moment in time too. I just I really just don't think it yeah. exists anymore. Not in this way. Like we dissected the Solange album down yeah. here, which was political mm-hmm. and which sort is of funny. subtle ways. Which is funny. But- so yeah, it's it's funny you bring that up and not to bring up Father John Misty again, but mm-hmm. same thing. We ended that talking mm-hmm. about what the shelf life is that is right. going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's something we didn't ask talking about Solange. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same as Father John Misty. Very short if things get better. Very short. Yeah. Like uh, if things don't get better, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I just gave up. Yeah. Because, you know, but, but, you know, those are, those are talking about very specific things. And I think it's important to shine the light on that. That's what artists do. Mm-hmm. But where are the people that are, doing these bigger things that are going to... I mean, this album is, we said it already, but this album is as relevant now because of the situation we're in as it mm-hmm. was 30 years ago. That's kind of fucked up. Oh, yeah. Well, we're also not even three months into the new administration. <laughs> it makes it more fucked up. <laughs> so it's like, I think that there is going to be plenty of time for for good protest art to catch mm-hmm. up. But you asked about the secret sauce on this album. I mean, it's, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm never one to ascribe single causes to, to complex systems, but I, I think it's as simple as this. They're brilliant songwriters. The four of them together just, just, just work musically, compositionally, um, because, you see the touches of song. It's 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 not like this album was 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 lightning in a bottle for these guys. You could see they yeah. were building up to this. They wrote yeah. brilliant, brilliant songs right from the word go on their first and album. As we said, like, they, the and next even, two albums were yeah. even more brilliant. And, <laughs> and even and even the later stuff that 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 people tend to 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 slag on a, a, a little bit, um, you can still see the touches. I mean, to 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 a certain extent, maybe after doing it for 25, 30 years, it becomes almost paint by numbers that you know exactly what buttons to push with your listeners mm-hmm. that are going to get the, that are going to draw out the emotions. Like they, they, they compose so beautifully. I mean, we we're just talking about bullet, the blue sky and, you know, I mean, just the way that that song is layered and, 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 and everything's placed on top and there's really not a lot to that song. But like, there's if, yeah. if you if you if you if you tease out the individual parts, you've got a standard driving rock drum beat. You've got a five or six note bass line that pretty much repeats through the entire song. When the edge is the, I mean, the edge just has a bunch of different effects and fuzz through a big gigantic amp, and he's just doing different things, playing single notes and letting it ring out. But it the 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 sum total of it is 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 stupendous, and it's not. Like I said, it's not like they hit lightning in a bottle with this album. They did, they did um, commercially hit lightning in a mm-hmm. bottle without question. But they had been tremendous songwriters going all the way back to the beginning, and still to this day are. Yeah, it it 
I mean, they still sell a billion albums. <laughs> or they uh, give them away to everyone's iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to mention that. But, I mean, uh, you know, they, they, they have definitely turned into something else. I mean, this YouTube doesn't exist. Why, right. why, would we, why, I mean, why would we expect them to? You get, you get bored. Right. I, I think. But, 80, but 1989 Public Enemy doesn't exist either. You can still, <laughs> sure. you can still go see Public Enemy, but you're never going to see... 1989 <laughs> right. Public Enemy. Yeah. Right. You know, you're never going to see 1993 Tribe Call Quest. You're, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can see Tribe Call Quest. You'll be, you know, without Fife, obviously. Rest in peace, Fife. <laughs> I mean, do you guys think this is something that people should actively like revisit, or just, just old people? Great music should always be should always be, um, yeah, listened to and enjoyed. Right. So we were talking about this before we came down to the basement. So. If I was to make my own personal ranking of U2 records, this is not number one or number two. It's probably number three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Acting Baby and War would be numbers one and two for me. I'd be right there with you on one, two, and three. Yeah. Um, but best isn't always the same as greatest. This might be their greatest mm-hmm. record, even if it's not necessarily, to my mind, their right. best record. Its greatness is because of its centrality in the memories of millions and millions of people around the world and the way that the three songs at the start are sort of ingrained in the world's popular consciousness and then past that there is so much amazingly good music on this record that isn't the hit single that isn't the stuff that everyone remembers from the mtv video and i was actually listening today and i was thinking to myself that the tracks from you know tracks four through seven or four through eight to my mind are revelatory i mean they really Mm -hmm. open up Mm -hmm. all sorts of of different sonic and lyrical ideas that you don't get on the three massive singles at the front and one tree hill and bullet and, and uh, red hill mining town. I mean, those are, you don't get them on the other albums either. You don't. And that's a, that's a really unique moment in that. You you think that's burying those because of insecurity or burying those just like, we just think this is a surplus of amazingly good material. Yeah. Because a lot of it came out, it was out, it came out on rattle and hum. Some of it came out on rattle and hum, which I'm not a huge, you know, fan of, but But by acting baby, a couple of years later, you know they they had kind of retreated from the, you know we are here to save the world kind of persona, and they'd kind of reevaluated hip hop and electronic music and drumming, mm-hmm. and they were starting from a very different sort of sonic template. It was almost like they killed this band. They killed and start because because uh, well, my, my, my you watch my the very is, dramatic like New Year's Eve show, uh, uh, where yeah. it's like we're going away to dream it up all again. Yeah, you know, like shut the fuck up, dude. Like, to, me, to me, to me, this was this sort of represents, I guess, the height of of, of everything that had come before. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, a perfect culmination of everything that had come before. And I think that they looked at this and they said, "Can we really top this? We just need to go in a completely different right. direction." And I think and popular me, this, culture had started to look yeah. at that as like, "You guys, you're out here trying to." To tell us how to save the planet and you know free the people of South Af- South Africa and right. liberate South America and stop hunting the whales and guys, you guys are so dogmatic. You know, so, so Bono's persona had gotten a little bit out of hand and it sort of dominated the rest of the band's music. So I that think, ties into what actually I want to uh, say something to the point of you know, writing these songs and and how you do this and, and the secret sauce and everything. You mentioned simplicity. And I think this is a problem with a lot of bands, a lot of creatives. I know I have struggled with it personally. When you hear something good, there is this instinctual thing to not copy it. Even though you know it's good. Mm -hmm. Like this. I think people could do this. 
but I don't. I, I think they hear it and they're like, I, ah, man, I don't, I don't want to copy. I don't want to step on the toes. Like Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. I think people can make what's going on. Just they are so intimidated by this great work that somebody got there first, and you want to make it your own instead of just being like, hey, you know. The world kind of benefits from like more really really good things, mm-hmm. so maybe uh, maybe you can not <laughs> do that. Maybe you can just go ahead and do it. I I mentioned you know, a lot of like YouTube clones, but they're I mean none of the none of the bands they they, they just don't really sound like them. No. You know the influence. You know the guys like I love the Edge, but mm-hmm. they don't they don't ever sound like you too. Part of that is who sounds like Bono. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's something we haven't talked about like throughout their career, but especially on this. You know, he's in the great tradition of like Irish soul singers, yeah. you know, yep. and with Van Morrison and stuff. Mm-hmm. Little man's got soul. Yeah. Like despair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and he was one of the last of the truly great rock front men mm-hmm. who was mm-hmm. totally going to be out in the front telling people to wave their hands back and forth or to stand up and whatever. And I think that a lot of other musicians that have emerged since the 1990s, really since kind of the grunge era, Looked askance at that kind of a, a role model for a frontman of a band. Like, no, nah, you're just part of the band. You shouldn't be like out in front, you know, cheerleading yeah, for LSD the LSD lead singer's disease. I mean, well, you know what? I mean, like, so <laughs> if you look at it chronologically, this isn't that far in time from the emergence of like the Seattle grunge scene. Huh? It's not that far. It's only a couple of years, really. Four years, yeah. Well, not even that, because there were bands out of Seattle from 1990, 89, you know, Mother Love Bone or, or whatever. And it's like that approach to rock was like, no, you're going to keep your head down. Quite literally, you're going to keep your head down, play your guitar and talk to your microphone. You're not going to be out in the front you know, waving a flag like Bono did in that video mm-hmm. and telling people how to but vote. Then, but then Eddie Vedder came along. And Eddie Vedder just got inaugurated into the Rock Run Hall of Fame. Yeah, I'm actually curious about you know whether Ed, where Eddie Vedder and Bono fit in the same sort of timeline. You can sort of see some some pieces there. Yeah, I don't know how explicit, but I'm sort of intrigued by that well, because, follow, because Eddie, follow, Eddie Vedder was like the anti Cobain, the anti whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he wanted to be that big front man. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm not a big let's, Pearl let's run fan, down like, like okay. the best front man, assuming Bono is one of them. Mm-hmm. Like who do you start with, front man of the band? Jagger. I was going to say I, Springsteen, but okay. I think you go James Brown first. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was He's the leader of the way. I guess if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of, but, so, yeah, but, but from there, you have a, a pretty pretty big jump to Mick Jagger. Yeah. Then then who's after Mick Jagger? The front man of an actual band. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Springsteen. Springsteen's in there. I was going to say Springsteen, but... He also plays guitar. So if you're looking like a Bono who's just a pure mm-hmm. singer. Yeah. I mean, Bono periodically plays guitar, but he is not a guitar. In their, in their age, you had the duel. You had Bono and Michael Stipe. Yeah. And Stipe, of course, you know, his persona was initially very different. He did be, later become very much more extroverted. Yeah. But, you know, Bono, it came to him naturally. Probably from the day he was born, he was like, I'm going to entertain you. Yeah. Um, whereas Michael Stipe was much more like reclusive in terms mm-hmm. of his persona still in front of the, the mic, but, you know, head down, not exhorting the crowd the same kind of way. Who's the uh, Maroon 5 guy? Is he count? <laughs> Levine? Yeah. Levine. Adam Levine. I was going to, I was going to, I was going to drop, I was going to drop Kip Winger on you. But... Um, okay. But, yeah. but no, no that, that's what I mean. It's like, there's, there's competent David Coverdale. Oh, we, well, we, we totally forgot Robert Plant. <laughs> okay. So that's, uh, but, you know, if you think about it, there's not many of them. There's good ones. David St. Hubbins. 
Um, but there's not many that like set the template, even yeah. as as these people were borrowing from that. I mean, he probably sat in his room and studied uh, Mick Jagger, Sid Vicious, <laughs> like Sex Pig, like get all the mm-hmm. moves right. Mm-hmm. And, Fear uh, Golf Sharky, huh? Fear Golf Sharky, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw a show. I saw a Going show. On, uh, I think it was on HBO or something where. It was an interview show, and it was um, who's the other who's the guy from Eurythmics? Dave Stewart sure. yeah. was interviewing them, and mm-hmm. at one point he just kind of like pulled out all of these vinyl LPs, and it was like Space Oddity, you know, never mind the Bullocks. I mean, it was like uh, the first Clash album. Mm-hmm. They were like, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. So I mean, and, they, there was definitely like maybe, a sound that they came out of. That's it, and that's why we we don't see this. That yet. may be the sparseness. Well, it's not their, the sparseness, but, but to like, it will like this occur again. You know, the times is definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. Like in, in that situation, but think about even the type of albums we have. And this is this is old man. We're going to end on a get off my lawn sort of note. <laughs> All right, yes. But if you grew up listening to early Stones, if you grew up listening to Bowie, early Dylan, if you grew up listening to fucking even like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Like, if you grew up listening to these things that are people, like, masters of music Mm -hmm. that built this temple of rock and roll, you're going to do things a little better than other people. And we don't have that, like, it's it's diluted. And I think stuff has not gotten, like, replaced as the buildings sort of degrade. People are just like, well, let's put in this new flashy thing. It's just like new DC, you know? And, you know, it... I mean that is get off my lawn. That is completely get off Very my lawn. So. Would you say yeah. would you say that they built this city? Yes. Oh, yes. Right. Rock and roll. <laughs> oh. uh, you know, and uh, <laughs> 1987. Um, well done. The, 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 you know, so if if we're looking at that, and you too wants to be that band again, I mean they they still they're doing stadiums again. Of course. So, not many bands do stadiums. Country does stadiums. Not many rock bands. I mean, they're in the nostalgia phase of their career. They don't think they still. They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't. still. They still. And, and to their, I, I, I think actually to their credit, they still actually make music and mm-hmm. and feel like they they have something to say. But I mean, at the point at which you go out on tour, specifically saying we're going to play this album that we released thirty years ago, mm-hmm. you're kind of sure. you're kind of in the nostalgia yeah. phase of your career. Sure. Well, I, and. And because their more recent records have either not been all that commercially or not that critically respected mm-hmm. or appreciated, mm-hmm. notwithstanding the whole sort of iPhone issue. But um, I mean, like, <laughs> like if you were to listen to so- the songs on that record that appeared on your phone mysteriously one night, they're not bad songs. They're not bad songs. But you're not going to because like... they're great songwriters and yeah. they understand exactly how to do it. Yeah. They understand exactly which chord progressions, which chords, mm-hmm. which notes that they can play to draw out. Sure. The 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 emotion. I mean, they, but I mean, they just but I mean, they so have it John down Mayer for that point. And and I mean, that, yeah, that, I they've mean, been doing, but they've been doing it for probably three times yeah, as long yeah, as John bit, Mayer. But, though. but I think that's what that's what long. actually has been lost is yeah. that they are master popsmiths and right. they can do it. Right. But something it, like used to elevate it above that because mm-hmm. that's what you want, right? Mm-hmm. You want people like pop music. We all like pop music. Absolutely. That's why, and you want it. And then if you can get a little edge. Uh-huh. Like that's why that's why like the most popular punk is pop punk. Yeah. Like it, the other stuff is very rarely good because it's just like making noise. It's essential. It's absolutely essential because out of that, some dude comes along who's like, you know, I can actually put two chords together. Let me try. That. I heard this guy go yeah. crazy. And then you have Joe Strummer. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then you have Joe Strummer. Exactly. I've always said Joe Strummer was like the punk guy who could really play music. Yeah. No, he absolutely was. And, uh, and a big influence on you too. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Ramones. And the Ramones. Also a big influence on you too. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I think the Ramones are why they started a band. I think yeah, so. Yeah, I think so too. And, and of course they wrote a song in memory of, of the Ramones much later in their career. Um, but, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, which uh, was sort of in the in that po- post octung post pop. No, it was on era. it was on it songs was, of it experience. Was, it was on, you yeah, can get it for free. It was on the now. record that appeared on your phone. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. They, I, I don't remember another... its title. I just remember it's the record that appeared on my phone one day. They had another one on the Vertigo, the the album that Vertigo was on. I think yeah, yeah. that that was a song that I, I, when I saw. How to dismantle an atomic live. bomb? Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's right. yeah, yeah. One of those albums that that era. They had a song that they dedicated to Joey Ramone. Yep. Was, I can't remember the name of the, the name of it, but it was, it was a good song. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, one of the things about U2 that has, that has, unfortunately, I don't know if they've managed it very well in the last decade or so of their career, is that a lot of their content has been backward looking. You know, they've been looking more at their mm-hmm. own influences when they were younger, their, the issues that they dealt with when they were younger. So as a result, they are sort of falling into that nostalgia trap. Um, one of the things that, all that you can't leave behind. It was very oh, it was very contemporary. The issues that they faced, you know, they had a song about Aung San Suu Kyi. They had a, all sorts of other stuff, and it really did sort of, it, it it you know, at a moment that rock bands weren't as big as they as they had been, it really did sort of seize a lot of the attention. But I was listening to um, how to dismantle an atomic bomb. I was like, oh yeah, that's it's not very good. It's not as interesting. There is some good material on it, but a lot of what they're talking about is like stuff that they had done before. Mm-hmm. They had either created a vibe that they had yeah. already explored yeah. or an issue that they had already addressed. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, you know, check that box. You're done. Uh, so I'm sort of curious, you know, in 2017, you know, what the references that you two is singing about are maybe not as central to our, you know, contemporary issues. I'd like to know if they, really politicize the stuff from Joshua Tree on tour. Yeah. I suspect they will. Yeah, I, I, I very much suspect they will. And I, you know, and like, do they write going forward? They're like, you know what? We were sort of in the zone there. I, and uh, I hope they do. Because back to the, back to the fear thing, like you can be afraid of your own art. You can just be like, yeah, I mean, you know, as a writer, oh, I'm writing sure. the same piece over and over and over. Yeah, I'm plagiarizing myself. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, um, and at the end of the day, just get out and check this album out. If you're if you're a yeah. whippersnapper, if you're a kid, I think we've we've rambled on enough about, mm-hmm. or, about if you, this. or if you only know the first three songs. That's fine. Yeah, dig in. <laughs> dig into the whole record. Yeah, dig in. It, it'll it'll uh it'll be a musical journey. It's an album. <laughs> it's an album. It's an album that also kind of reveals itself the more you listen to it. Like like mm-hmm. a lot of great U two. I mean, I will say this: uh, we've I've known that we were doing this pod for about a week now. Um, I think I've maybe listened to this album once in the last week, just because I know every single note yeah. on this album. I was like, I don't really need to listen to this to be able to speak knowledgeably about it. Yeah. Um, I did actually listen to it in the car on the way over, but uh, but I do know every note of this album. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you guys for coming out. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. And, uh, we'll see you soon.
You choose the Joshua Tree, a uh, landmark in music history back in 1987. Um, I know my musical consumption would not be the same without this album. It's like it was like hearing the Beatles. It was it just opened up a whole new world. And I did that for everybody who was down here today, and I'm sure I did that for a lot of you guys. They're actually out on tour uh, doing this. I don't usually like the the old, we're taking the old album out for a spin tour, but uh, it has been many, many years since I've seen them uh, in concert. In fact, Zuropa was the last time, and uh, so now might be the time. Here in D.C., they're playing here at FedEx Field, uh, so maybe uh, me and the lady will head out there, and maybe you'll see us out there. I don't know. Maybe it won't. Hopefully, uh, if you, uh, like I said in the little intro, you know, if you're a fan of this band, and, and hopefully we entertained you for a little bit, and if you weren't and you were trying to figure it out, hopefully we uh, maybe turned you on a little bit to it. And uh, you can explore their other albums. My personal favorite of theirs uh, is obviously not any of the new ones, uh, Zeropa. And we're gonna do we're gonna do a discologist on that. So if you want to wait for us to do that, find out more about it, but. I would recommend just uh, grabbing a good pair of headphones and sitting in the dark and uh, cranking that shit up uh, because it's a remarkable album. As was the Joshua Tree. That is our podcast for this week. Thanks to Ian and Sarah and Michael for coming down. Hopefully you'll hear from them soon. Again, uh, if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, up on SoundCloud when we want to be. You can leave us a rating. We appreciate that. We also appreciate any feedback. So if you have uh, if you have some uh, comments, you can leave it in the post. You can leave it on iTunes. You can email directly to uh, Kevin at ChunkyGlasses.com. That is directly to me. Uh, or And if you have a message for anybody who's on this podcast, hit me up and I'll, and I'll pass it along. Uh, if, you, uh, if you are hearing this, maybe for the first time, and you're like, I live in D.C., and I think I might like to do that. You are in luck because we are bringing in uh, lots of new people down to the basement to uh, talk about albums because, um, quite frankly, you know, we, we know all our opinions. Uh, myself, Eduardo, Paul, Andre, Mr. Dowling, uh, you know, we talk about this stuff all day and uh, we'd like to get some, some fresh, some fresh voices down here, some fresh minds. Uh, so look for that, and if you think that you uh, you have what it takes, which is really an opinion about music and an ability to speak, then uh, hit me up at Kevin at ChunkyGlasses.com, and we'll see what we can uh, put together. Don't be a psycho, though. If you're a psycho, this is not going to work out for you. only works out for us. Uh, so that's it. We'll be back in a few short days, and i uh, got some great stuff coming up, actually. I can't tell you about it, but it's some, it's some pretty cool stuff. Um, ooh, man, yeah, it's good. Uh, but we'll be back in a few short days. Get out and see some live music, why don't you? Uh, until we meet again, be good to your ears, but be better to your people. Talk to you soon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Kenobi!